1: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This is episode 171, part two of Dr. Ray and Dr. Miles' question and answer session from the recent two-day seminar in Portland, Oregon. This week's podcast includes a discussion of surgery versus non-surgical management for various types of injuries, way to reduce the injury risk when training a client in person, how to measure strength, when to get your kids training, and much, much more. Before we get into this week's podcast, a few announcements. We have some big news to announce. The Barbell Medicine app is finally live and available for download through the Apple App Store. If you're looking for an app to log your workouts, track PRs, volume, body composition, etc., this app is for you. The link is in the description below. This app is free for download and all of your barbell medicine templates will be automatically ready to go once you log in. The app can also be used with your own personal non-barbell medicine workouts as well. We're still working on getting a few of the newest templates in there. So like the low fatigue template uh, and I believe our latest hip rehab template, the free strongman template. Those are the three I think that currently are missing, maybe power building three, but I know that they are uploaded and we just need to uh, update the app. So those should be delivered as soon as the app updates. Uh, For all of the Green Bubble folks listening to this, the Android app will be coming later on, so just hang tight. But we're really excited. Go over to the App Store, download the app, and let us know what you think. Finally, all of our apparel is back in stock and now shipping. Uh, You can check out the link in the description below or head over to our website and get your latest barbell medicine gear. Without any further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast.
2: Are there studies that you know of assessing the effect of surgery versus conservative management for other surgeries besides rotator cuff and discectomies?
3: We have it for, we have it for FAI, lumbar discectomy, I think just about, well, yeah, just about every arthroscopic. Yep. Uh, well, I, I can't speak to hand. Really, a lot of the evidence isn't nearly as good as what it's portrayed as like we talked earlier you know ACL your return to sport if you're a quote unquote normal athlete non professional is about 57% for the same thing after a hip scope it's barely better than a coin flip and i think we overweight the the surgical side for all of it because it is it, an interesting conversation especially for ones that have long term protocols because the thought process is surgery is gonna get you there faster. Yep. When something like a, a hip scope, you're probably talking six months minimum.
0: Well, you're already taking that initial six weeks post-op that you're already behind the eight ball because you went through the surgery.
3: Well, no, I, I'm gonna say you're behind the eight ball for six months. Yeah. Because that, that's the soonest you'll see any protocol to my knowledge. Meaningful
0: loading at that point no
3: return to sport so you know what could we have done in that same amount of time from a conservative nature it's just i you know i sometimes i wonder if like conservative is just a bad word because it makes it sound like we're not doing enough yeah yeah
0: yeah i it's interesting because the position we're currently in from like a research standpoint is we're asking for more evidence to refute what we're currently doing than we use to substantiate what we're currently doing. And that kind of baffles my mind. Does that make sense? We're asking for more evidence than we use to substantiate standard of care. Which is fine, like we will go out and get it as people are doing, but it doesn't make a lot of sense logically of wanting more evidence to refute our current belief system. So in other sense, are these surgeries actually necessary or are they just traditional kind of appeals to dogmatic thinking.
2: Do you have any guidance on interventions for neural changes or a shift to athletes relying more on vision post ACL injury? How much time would you spend on this throughout the rehab process?
3: It would depend on where they are in the rehab process. I'm going to interpret this question as we're talking about athletes that need to use sight to react to another player and there is a good bit of information coming out on this um meredith Chaput, and i may be butchering her last name so i apologize if anyone listening to this knows her um is doing a lot of the papers on this currently it depends on the athlete like if your quad's not strong i'm probably not spending a lot of time on it yet but if i'm not touching it at all i'm doing a disservice to the athlete like we need to be doing things to where they're having to pay attention to what's going on. One of my PTAs when I was at Stanford Children's was phenomenal about doing drills where you'd be dribbling a basketball or doing some type of task, but your eyes would have to be up saying numbers back. And I I think that is great drills to have in place, but it depends on the athlete on how much I want to devote to it. Like if you're a cornerback or or if you're a baseball player and you need to be paying attention to something coming in, yeah, we need to be... Focusing on the eye side of it, but you know, I I don't I think we overweight a lot of this stuff, especially as it becomes in vogue. Like I would argue, this currently is, and then we realize, yeah, it does matter, but it's just one piece of the puzzle.
2: What is your thought process for non-op versus operative decision making for ACL? What discussion do you have with folks who do not have athletic or movement based activity goals?
3: I think we grossly overutilize ACL reconstruction. If you look at the evidence for why we do it, it is not to prevent the onset of osteoarthritis, it is to increase the odds of you returning to level one sports. Level one sports defined as those that involve cutting, change of direction, jumping. If you are an individual who is, for the sake of argument, in your mid-30s, not meeting physical activity guidelines, not participating in any sports, the likelihood of you needing an ACL reconstruction is very low. There is a study, and I'm, I'm not gonna try and quote it Directly, because I don't remember the exact number, but they looked at individuals who were undergoing total knee replacements, and it was a large percentage of them at surgical time did not have an ACL. And when you think about it, like, depending on your religious beliefs, humans have been around somewhere between 6,000 and a couple hundred thousand a million years, depending on where we fall in this. We've been repairing ACLs for about 70 to 80 of those. <laughs> We've been doing it arthroscopically in like current protocol methods for about 25. It's not like we dropped dead of an ACL tear yeah. 200 years ago.
0: If, if I tore my ACL tomorrow, I'd be like, oh, that sucks. Looks like I'm modifying training for a few weeks or months.
3: Well, and, and recently if if, you follow this literature people have been talking about a subset out of the canon trial where they showed a lot of like a good cohort. I don't remember the percentage spontaneously healed Yep. and no one ever talks about that. Yep. Instead we're trying to do a bare procedure or like I'm old enough to remember when they did the Gore-Tex graphs and everyone thinks it's the greatest thing ever when it comes on. And at one year outcomes, it is the greatest thing ever. And then at five year outcomes, it's just as bad if not worse than everything else. And I understand that gives me a curmudgeon error, but I've been treating patients long enough now to where, in, with, especially with an, an ACL paper, If it's less than a five-year study, like, I don't care.
2: As personal trainers, what are the most important things we can do to ensure our clients don't injure themselves while under our instruction and direction?
0: Derek drinks the bourbon at the injury question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, This is difficult, right? Like, we'd have to define injury, which I've avoided all weekend. Um, because it's difficult to define injury uh, beyond the person level. Ultimately, I'm going to say uh, we released a podcast, I think, 2018 on injury risk reduction. And the title of the YouTube talk is Three Doctors Talk Injury Risk Reduction. It's not what you think. And where I would try to focus my attention on is what is the person's prior, most recent physical activity look like? And am I dosing an activity to their tolerance level and then progressing it to their tolerance and recovery level? So focusing on doses of activity, um, focusing on things like sleep quantity and quality, stress management, stuff like that. Um, that's where the most like tangible items we have supportive data for. But outside of that, we don't have much. Um, and that's without even getting into the weeds on defining, defining injury.
3: I'll, I'll take it a different route. I would have conversations about the willingness of the person to accept said risk. I think whenever we talk about like reducing injury risk, we all assume like everyone pictured the ideal patient. If you're a personal trainer working with motocross riders, you're not, like they're gonna get hurt. It's just the nature of the sport. If you're working with like, let's, let's take the most charitable prophylactic conversation. Um, I've joked all weekend, swimmers don't tear ACLs. But swimmers have a lot of overuse type injuries. Well, what's the thing missing there? If we look at it from physical activity guidelines, it is the strength training. Like I know that this question was asked under the impetus of a technique type answer, but that's not really where I would be looking so much as like, are we picking up some slightly heavier things Are we getting the cardiovascular training that we should be striving for? Are you sleeping enough? Are you meeting your dietary needs? If you are within a standard deviation of those, I am comfortable saying you are more than checking the boxes for reducing the risk of injuries. So long as you don't make ridiculously poor life decisions, like not doing motocross for, I don't know, four <laughs> years, and then getting back into it and launching yourself into the air and over the front of your handlebars. <laughs> not that I'm using a specific example right now.
2: As physical therapists, we need to have objective measures uh, for strength. How specifically do you measure strength and what resources do you use to compare said strength measures
3: to? Ice kinetic dynamometer, followed by handheld dynamometer, followed by pull dynamometer, Followed by an isolated open kinetic chain exercise. Followed by a closed kinetic chain exercise. Yeah. Don't use manual muscle tests. Yeah. What Please.
0: What, uh, what's the name
3: of the blog? Uh, uh, I think it's on limb symmetry. Matters. Yeah, or when symmetry matters. Yeah. Um, really, uh, there are a host of ways to objectively measure but back to it from the performance standpoint just because i get x muscle stronger in whatever way i'm testing it doesn't mean you're going to be a better athlete like you're a better athlete by performance metrics did you score more points did your team win more games it's just that we have i'm not even going to say decent i'll just say we have evidence that Strong people tend to be better at certain sports. (coughs) Emphasis on certain. And it's not that, you know, magically, if we get you stronger, you're going to qualify for the Olympics. All you have to do is be a Hungarian snowboarder in order to do that and not fall down. But if no one knows this story, you should look it up, people listening to this. Um, But... Stop doing manual muscle tests. That's my biggest advice. I'll flip this on its head.
0: With the caveat of the only thing it could really pick up would be fairly substantial deficits, like borderline paralysis. Like
3: uh, I don't know if I go. I mean, I think it's good for a neuro screen. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I mean, you'll pick up a, a three versus a five. Right. It would have but, to be a,
0: a gross deficit to be utilized.
3: But... All practicing clinicians in here right now. I would love to return to all of our professors now that we've all been in practice for a while. Like, could you guys explain to me again the difference between a four plus and a five? Like, at my size, if I'm testing someone versus Hannah testing someone, I am willing to bet that I am pressing harder if I'm checking manual if muscle. she like
0: gets into the athletic position and. Uh, Godspeed. It's not
3: gonna happen. (laughs) Uh,
2: Muscle injuries question. What is the recommended frequency per week for isolation exercises? And what is the recommended number of exercises?
3: It depends on what, like where the athlete is in their season and what we're trying to get back to in their training history. For our fictitious motocross athlete, we will say the recommendations are two to three times a week Depending on where you are along the way, most of the evidence points to being more in the higher rep range. But the big thing is with any muscle injury is, like slow tends to be a lot more beneficial than fast. Like you don't restrain your hamstring doing something really slow. It's always the second you start trying to do things quick.
2: This is related. How important is it to get a stretch on the target muscle with exercises?
3: Well, so there there actually is a lot to this question. Uh, it depends on what sport the athlete is doing. If you're a runner, or a sprinter, I should say, specifically, it's probably a lot more important because that's where it tends to happen is at that, like, yep. in-range knee extension. But if you're a lifter, uh, I, don't, I probably don't care as much. Yeah, I mean, and, still
0: utilize... And like focus to but it, yeah,
3: yeah, I still want to go back there and emphasize the as much. Yeah, but I I don't think it's I don't think any of this stuff is imperative. Like, no single variable is going to break the bank. If if I have the choice between a twenty pound hamstring curl at RPE four through a full range of motion and a seventy pound hamstring curl at RPE seven through eighty percent range of motion, I'm taking the second. There's just too many variables that are like. Pick that one weird thing that's going to cure the problem.
0: Well, this goes back to the the discussion of Nordics, like the flaws of that research. It's just one component of looking at injury risk reduction for return
3: to sport. It's mostly on soccer players that have never done any form of strength training in their life. Well, that
0: reminds me of the Larson et al. review that Uh, looked at trying to make the claim that, well, if you're stronger and we do strength training, that mitigates injury risk reduction. And then you look at it, most of the data is drawn from Nordic hamstring curls on field-based sport athletes.
3: It's for every 10% increase in strength, there's a 4%. No, every 4% increase in strength, there's a 10% decrease in risk of injury. But once again, like when you're talking about individuals that have never strength trained, like 4%, like all all you're telling me is you're grossly under-trained. Yes, in that regard. Yeah. Yeah.
2: The clinic that I am at right now is much more of a blue collar manual labor demographic that are likely needing physical activity guidelines by lifting heavy stuff and spending lots of time on their feet with their work. How would you intervene with these patients from an exercise perspective?
3: Well, man, if you want to tee one up for us right now, this would be the one. Yep. There is a huge difference in the literature between occupational physical activity and leisure physical activity. Yep. And what it comes down to, in my opinion, is that there is a massive difference between having to do physical activity and wanting to do physical activity. If you think you have to go pick up the load in whatever, pick a profession, carry shingles up a ladder all day, then odds are you're not gonna reap the same benefits as the individual who goes to a strongman gym and his workout is to carry a 90-pound bag up a flight of stairs 40 times. And it seems like there is a very significant relationship between wanting to do activity and having to do activity.
0: What it reminds me of is there are studies out there that look at perception of activity, which is what Derek's getting at. The study that comes to mind is the MAID study. Langer. Yeah, where they they take a group of folks who work as like hotel cleaners and they shift how they perceive their job duties to, oh, you're walking so many minutes per day. You're doing so much physical activity. And they note, what were the outcomes, weight reduction?
3: Uh, There was like four and all of them ended up, uh, pain was one of them.
0: And all they did is change their perception of their activity from manual labor. This is work-related activity to this is beneficial physical activity. Nothing changed otherwise, just their perception in it. And they got improved outcomes. So a lot of it is what Derek is saying is your perception of why are you doing what you're doing is the determining factor in the outcomes that we're looking at.
3: But I think for that population, it might not be that you need to add in seven new exercises. Sometimes having that conversation, like it tips the scales in favor of where you need to be.
2: What are your thoughts on the McKenzie method for low back pain? If the repeated movement centralizes their pain, do you include it as part of the patient's home exercise program?
3: I hate eponyms. <laughs>
0: I don't feel like I have to add anything to that.
3: <laughs> uh, if a repeated movement centralizes their symptoms, that's fine. Uh, I One of my favorite things that I've learned about in the last two years is Stigler's Law of... I'm going to say this word wrong, epinemony of basically it's the law states that if it's assigned to someone, that was the second person. Oh, yeah. Like, it's basically like the Simpsons did it of everything that gets named to where, and it's funny because apparently Stigler's law was actually, he was the second person to come up with this hypothesis as well, so it's actually like truism. (sighs) We need to stop... Trademarking people's last names associated with special tests and methods.
0: So don't do the Ray Big Four.
3: Yeah, that's well, or it's the Miles Big Five. Um, there you go. It's 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 kind of weird. It's actually only like 3.1 kilometers. It's like an inverse of what goes on. But um, yeah, that that was definitely a reach on the joke. Uh, but all of these methods, there's a paper by Lutz that goes through the history of low back pain and we had Syriax, we've had paris we've had maitland we've had mckenzie cool i appreciate what these individuals did you don't need to specialize the name in order to figure out if an individual does centralize with a certain movement maybe have them do that movement that's no difference than if you're having anterior knee pain i'm like hey you know what let's block anterior tibial translation and you feel better we're going to do split squats like this for a little while I don't call it the Miles method of Osgood-Schlatters patellofemoral pain syndrome adjustment. We,
0: that is a missed
3: profitability <laughs> avenue. Trademark, copyright, registered. We can make yeah. a lot of money. I, I, I just have a visceral disdain yeah. for eponyms associated with methods.
0: What's interesting is like. It's a wash in the evidence. Like, uh, there was a review that came out last year on McKinsey It was like, it's no better than any other approach. And even from a classification approach, turns out classification I- is irrelevant for the most part. Like, you're going to get an effect no matter what you do in that regard. And so I wouldn't put McKinsey as like an elevated position above other approaches. And my concern is the narratives that get associated with that approach. That's what I'm worried about. And there's also a subset of people who, don't need to go into a particular position for a little bit of time that they need to pull away from that and then eventually dose it back in so i I just don't think that it works and it turns into wanting to confirm our own bias for our particular you know area of interest or our trademark of interest that we're vested in and it's like arguing over i really like nike but maybe i should buy reebok instead but i personally like nike
2: How do you think that the rehab professions can agree on a unified and or standardized language and principles?
3: Do you want to say they can't or should I say they can't? (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) man, I lose faith on a daily basis, I would say.
3: We can't even agree within our own profession. Once again, what, what was the last question? We were talking about a subset of clinicians that I would argue overvalue a certain named method. If anything, I think there is a, it's it's kind of like the Baptist church phenomenon. It's like you break off and we have the second Baptist church and the first Baptist church and yeah. yeah. And it's like, there's this weird taxonomy of methodology of, well, this guy disagreed, so it's always a guy. So he started his own school, and then they created a four-letter certification, and then this guy disagreed with that, and now we have – it's like you could throw a dart at a wall, and if you have practor, therapist, muscle, osteo – what am I missing? Uh, Functional, manual, international, orthopedic, integrative – and it's just this, like, word salad. Yeah. It's, it's an ambrosia, if you will, of horrendous vernacular.
0: Yeah. Um, I just don't care about titles. I mean, when you and I started working together in 2015, we ran a website that I don't know how many people noticed this, but it was called Logic of Rehab. And on our icon, there was FYT on the unicorn hat, which stood for Fuck Your Title because we don't care. Um, I don't know how we... I don't know how we get over titles and egos. I'm optimistic that we can. I don't have a tangible answer, but I think that's how we... We, we, we unify language by realizing we need to work together and move beyond just our title silos.
3: It's, they talk about in science uh, to create a dichotomy, people are lumpers or splitters, and the splitters want to... like you know, divide everything up and you're talking like tax classification and the lumpers of the individuals that are like, Bring it all together. well, it's actually more similar than we think. Yeah. And I, I think you and I would both qualify in the lumper lumpers. category. Yeah. So
2: how do you manage your mental health with social media, specifically people who may not be so professional or nice? Mm. Mm.
3: There is a phenomenal conversation around what they call parasocial relationships. And It is people who think they know you via your online persona. And I think at a certain point, this starts playing into the conversation. Uh, I really believe that social media is extremely harmful for an individual's mental health. As someone who needs to be on social media. Yeah,
0: um, man. I go back and forth. Like, A, I think about if I look at the people that are currently I'm getting the opportunity to work with, um, like research, or you and I meeting, we met on a social media platform, there's a lot of good that can come out of it. I don't know if I could figure out, like, do the risks outweigh the benefits or vice versa, Uh, but I don't see it going away. So ultimately, I think it's similar to, like, choosing your battles with the patients you're trying to help if they're not ready to hear what you have to say or to make changes then I probably shouldn't try to do the same thing on social media and trying to uh, minimize wanting to and I'm saying this and I know I, I fall short regularly because I probably get more in internet fights than you do on a regular basis but trying to minimize that um, it just doesn't typically work out because social media allows anonymity You don't have that face-to-face contact. You can say whatever you want to say and you feel like there's no repercussions. So yeah, Uh, uh, what was the example you guys used with me one day that I was like ranting and raving about a social interaction I had online and you guys were like, don't fly too close to the sun.
2: All right, Derek, you mentioned that there's a lot that you don't know about the world of exercise science, which is something that I think about all the time as a personal trainer. How do I, as a personal trainer, balance the humility in the subject of training while also conveying confidence in addressing my client's training concerns and questions?
3: I love that this individual has allowed me to tee up or tee up my favorite quote of all time. Yes, my mentor at the University of Florida is one of the greatest humans that has ever lived. He is the true manifestation of Zangief from Street Fighter <laughs> with the inter- <laughs> intelligence of Aristotle himself. Uh, Tim Shea would look at me on a regular basis and say, always confident, never sure. And that was browbeat into me in my formative years as a physical therapist. I think anyone who has a high degree of certainty among a broad spectrum of answers is never to be trusted. You're going to have moments of I know nothing And I can't tell you how often that still happens to me. However, what I have learned and the the best part of these conferences, uh, like I like teaching, but I also like interacting with people and learning. And even this weekend, one of the attendees came up and said, well, this meta analysis contradicts what you were saying. Awesome, send it my way. I can't wait to read it. And I think, I honestly think admitting you're never going to have it figured out just keeps you curious and that's how i deal with the dread of it all
0: yeah it's it's interesting like i was thinking about working with a team of folks like yourself and other people that are on our research team like the whole point you approach things with a team is because there's no possible way you can know everything and so having people in your corner to say Having people in your corner to say, hey, I think you're wrong, goes a long ways to keep you in check. Um, and it's, it's not meant from like a, an attacking position. It's like we need to have a conversation about this. But there's, I can't look to just myself. It doesn't make any sense, right? You need to work together with others.
2: Derek, if you had a daughter, which you do? <laughs> <laughs> Assuming she does everything you say, at what age would you introduce sports? And which sports... And how would you periodize it during the year with other activities and sports for optimal health and growth? Do you
0: want to lay out Claire's entire periodization for the next 18 Uh, years?
3: Okay, so I have a daughter. (laughs) Uh, Same. She shares half of my genetics, and my wife is as stubborn, if not more so than me. So I think setting the expectation that I could have some sway over the periodization of my daughter or her choices... It's probably the wrong way to approach this out of the gate. Relatable. I would love to think that myself and my wife's participation in physical activity is going to inspire my daughter to do the same thing. However, as a youth sports therapist, I'm here to facilitate whatever she wants to do. And it's her choice to a point of what that is. Like, we're gonna do something, I I don't, once again, I, I will go back to my normal joke. If my daughter wants to LARP, I will make sure her shield is sufficiently heavy to qualify as resistance training. As long as she is casting spells for 150 minutes at moderate level activity, let's go cast some spells. I have no expectation that my daughter is going to be some international level, whatever sport we are going to pick. But whatever she is interested in, it is my job to facilitate that to the best of my possible ability and get frustrated as little as I can when I see my own personality emerge in her and she tells me where to go and how to get there. Which happens. It's coming.
2: And would this recommendation change if it was a male?
3: Not a bit.
2: For trainers avoiding diagnosing, but who feel generally comfortable working with clients' pain, what should we look out for as outliers to suggest more specialized care, whether PT or unicorn cases?
3: Make friends with rehab specialists. Make friends with physicians. Run these ideas past them on a case-by-case basis. That is my answer. Hard stop, period. Uh, It's interesting.
0: We've had this discussion with... um looking at a certification of knowing when people should refer out and I don't know that we've come to an answer.
2: How can we approach the general public and create environments where youth can learn to strength train and condition while also taking into consideration socioeconomic status and social determinants of health?
3: The first thing we do is when certain social media pages post youth lifting you turn the comments off immediately. Uh, that would be my first step. Uh, I, I am, I am frankly sick of having to go into the comments section of things like this and post the American Academy of Sports or America, American Academy of Pediatrics position statement on youth resistance training. You're never going to solve all of this, and it's not about solving; it's about moving the needle. You create open environments where we encourage movement instead of continue to demonize it. You stop rehab specialists from saying you have to squat a certain way, or if you don't move in a certain direction or whatever the fascial sling du jour is, you're gonna have an injury. Like once again, it's like, let kids have their own path. Like I'm gonna rant for a second have alcohol, yeah. yeah, no. We've <laughs> we've taken play out of this, and we've forgotten that kids just need to go move in a non-structured way. Like everything now is so sterile. Like we have created environments where eight-year-old leagues are the equivalent of the lifter who needs the calibrated deadlift plates on a bar in a perfectly level. And if they don't have their Aliko shoes, and Mars is in retrograde, they're not going to be able to hook grip properly that day. I don't know
0: that Aliko makes.
3: Okay, go ahead. no I don't care it's, it's like whatever like but it, it's just ridiculous the ludicrousness that we approach all of this we've completely turned it into this ridiculously structured excel sheet for development yeah. if you aren't doing X by y then we need to intervene upon it but we can't intervene upon it because you haven't done a b and C I I blame rehab specialists yeah. like I, I I'll Listen, uh, before I'm gonna cast stones in others' houses, I'm gonna burn (laughs) down the one I'm living in. But you look at it and I'll go straight at like peds ortho PT here. Like a lot of this stuff is predicated on the opinions of antiquated clinicians and it needs to go away. Until we can see that there needs to be space to go play, there needs to be adequate load in order to get kids where they need to go, You're fighting an uphill battle, and we're never going to solve the problem. And I think a lot of old-school clinicians need to get the hell out of the way so we can open up the space. There's a quote that I don't know who to attribute it to, and if anyone listening to this wants to tell me, I will happily tag them in it for the rest of my career. said, if kids are bouncing off the walls, maybe we should consider removing the walls.
2: Last question. Whoa. Not pain and rehab related. Sweet. Uh, Top three artists in your listening rotation over the past three months.
0: (laughs) This is tough. Like, I need context. Like, is it rap? Is it rock? Is it, like...
3: This transcends... You're a lumper, man.
0: All right, fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Artists. Uh, Mac Miller. Okay. Um... Man, this is tough. Um... Outcast. Okay. Um, top three. I'm drawing a blank for the third one.
3: Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Okay. That's by far my number one. Uh, been on a pretty big uh, a debate on where to go because it's the same station. Uh, the Greyhounds. Mm. Yeah. Uh, It's been high on the jam list recently. Okay. And then I've been rowing a lot, so a ton of Pantera.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My third, I was thinking of rock, but I couldn't like bring forth a single band. Yeah. I'll just go with rock.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Air Supply. (laughs) There you go.
1: right that's a wrap on this week's barbell medicine podcast thank you so much for listening big shout out to doctors Derek Miles and Michael Ray for recording this also Tom Capitelli for handling the audio visual stuff for this we'll have some of these clips up on YouTube shortly Uh, before you go anywhere please leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness we'll see you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast see you